Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In more than 20 states, Republican lawmakers have introduced proposals to restrict teaching about systemic racism or other, quote, divisive concepts in schools, saying the effort is a fight against critical race theory, a concept that emerged decades ago in legal scholarship that examines racism in U.S. laws and institutions. We look at what critical race theory is and why it's stirring backlash now. And joining me first is Dr. Kendall Thomas, a professor and co-founder and director of the Center for the Study of Law and Culture at Columbia Law School. Kendall Thomas, thanks so much for joining us. Kendall Thomas, are you there? Thank you for having me. Yeah, really appreciate having you here. In 1995, I know you co-authored the book Critical Race Theory, the key writings that formed the movement which collected important and foundational essays on critical race theory. So can you just start by explaining the main pillars of it, what critical race theory is? I'd be happy to do that. I am a member of the Brown versus Board of Education generation. Brown was decided in 1954. I was born in 1957. And my family sent me to public schools as a child Uh, with the hope that I would receive the kind of public education that previous generations of my family had not been able to receive, in part because of the Supreme Court's decision in 1954 declaring that separate but equal racial segregation, Jim Crow public education violated the Constitution. And yet, within a few short years, it became apparent all over the country that the promise of Brown, on which so many African-American and other uh, people of color had um, invested such hope, was uh, being unrealized. And that the problem of what the Supreme Court was later to call societal discrimination was acting as a break on the kinds of changes that the Brown court envisioned in uh, addressing the problem of Jim Crow segregation. Critical race theory tries to bring together a number of diverse approaches and ideas that try to answer the question, why have we, notwithstanding the fact uh, that we have witnessed these important legal reforms with respect to race, still seen such persistent and entrenched systemic racial inequality? Why do we still wrestle all these many years after Brown versus the Board of Education with the realities of institutional racism. And critical race theory offers an account of institutional racism that allows us to let go of the story that racism is always and everywhere and only about individual acts, prejudice, bias, animus, and hatred, and looks at the ways in which Racial inequality uh, and the historical legacy of racism in America is baked into our institutions, baked into our social structure in ways of which we are not always aware. 
Hmm. So, you know, things like brown, which were facially neutral, for example, or we're trying to create equity, that we still have persistent segregation in different forms or racism, Absolutely. as you say. Or, well, we and, can call it colorblind racism, right? The racism which doesn't explicitly reference race, but which nonetheless is able to reproduce and entrench racial inequality. And so is that one of the things that you would say critical race theory was also responding to? Uh, because this seemed to develop in the 70s and then really gain traction in the 80s. It was trying to address this sort of colorblind movement or this idea that to be colorblind was to solve problems. Well, there's a tight connection between the ideology of colorblindness and a kind of hyper radical individualism, uh, which holds that the heart of racial injury consists in the relationship between two private individuals and the refusal of one individual, in effect, uh, to look past race. Uh, first, critical race theorists raise a question, well, why is race something that people ought to want to look past? Uh, and secondly, they ask the question, is that even possible? Or is that a myth or fiction uh, that we're telling ourselves to ignore the impossibility of uh, not seeing uh, race? Why don't we confront with our eyes wide open uh, the history and the continuing impact on the present of, our, uh, uh, of race in our society? And the, the myth of colorblindness uh, has been one of the most persistent and, in my view, uh, disabling um, realities in the, uh, uh, in the path of racial progress in the United States. I want to bring Ian Haney Lopez into this conversation, constitutional law scholar and law professor at UC Berkeley. He's also a senior fellow at Demos and the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. Dr. Ian Haney Lopez, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So one of the things that I was struck by is that you've described yourself as somebody who has felt closely identified with critical race theory. Can you can you explain why it spoke to you, what it is in terms of your legal scholarship as well that that it really you feel like gets at? Well, I think Kendall did a really nice job of explaining it. But uh, let me let me repeat what Kendall was saying, but 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 maybe in a different sort of way, in a way that might come across as really surprising to a lot of your audience. I think all of us know that racist practices like slavery and genocide have been around for four or 500 years, uh, or modern racist practices. What very few people recognize is that the word racism has been around for less than 100 years. So it's only been since the 1930s that we've developed a vocabulary that says, racist practices like slavery, like genocide, like wars of conquest against Spain or Mexico, that those are not merely reflections of nature or divine ordinance. Those are instead social practices that are immoral and unjust and must be repaired. And you, you hear the sort of the moral condemnation in the word racism. Well, in that context, then, 
we've been debating for a hundred years what is and what is not racism. And the early intuition about racism was, well, racism is merely interpersonal. And I think critical race, and you can see that in the sort of, oh, all we need to do is integration and pass a few laws that um, prohibit people from mistreating others. And critical race theory comes along and says racism is so much more than that. Racism is embedded in our laws. It's embedded in our economy. It's, it's reflected in our schools, in our neighborhoods. I think many of us are saying racism is an important political weapon. Racism can be expressed through coded language. Racism um, functions in cultural terms, right? But we're really trying to have a conversation about what is racism such that we should recognize it as unjust and immoral. And that's very much what the 2020 and 2021 is all about with the murder of George Floyd and the rise of Black Lives Matter as by some measures, the largest protest movement in the history of the country. You're having a, we, we as a nation are having a renewed debate. What is, what is racism? What is immoral? What must we repair? And what we're seeing is a lot of pushback against that saying racism isn't segregation. Racism isn't police violence. Racism is people of color talking about racism. And that's, the, that's how you can understand the danger of an ideology like colorblindness that says racism is whenever anybody actually talks about race or racism is critical race theory, this academic effort to try and understand racism, any effort to foreground conversations about racism is itself the real racism we face. That's, this is the debate we're having. What is racism? What, is, what are these immoral practices that we as a society must work against, work to disestablish, work to repair? It's interesting in hearing you talk about um, this notion that anybody who talks about race is essentially the person who's obsessed with race and, and being racist. It reminds me a little bit of that uh, famous 2007 U.S. Supreme Court decision in school assignment where Chief Justice John Roberts basically said something along the lines of, to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race is basically just saying, you know, we, we need to stop making race the focus to be able to deal with racism. I'll have to be honest, though, I know while you are saying that that the nation is having sort of a renewed debate or conversation around these issues, Kendall Thomas, I, I do feel like the very concept that racism is systemic, that it's part of our institutions, that while laws may appear neutral, they can perpetuate inequities and in racism as well. That concept feels like it's become very mainstream at this point, that, that maybe it's a function of where I live, but that, that we've evolved to kind of understand that. Well, that may be true in some parts of the United States, but when you have very prominent uh, politicians on the national stage, uh, such as Governor DeSantis of Florida or uh, former Vice President Mike Pence declaring categorically that we need to stop talking about institutional or structural racism because they don't exist. Uh, I have to wonder about the extent to which there is now a consensus around the reality of uh, institutional racism. The irony is that the idea of institutional racism is not a radical idea. Uh, in many ways, critical race theory builds upon an insight 
that I encountered as a young law professor in a memo that was written by the late Justice Antonin Scalia in the case of McCleskey versus Kemp, one of the Supreme Court's most important death penalty cases in which the court was asked to pass on the constitutionality of Georgia's death penalty system, which didn't uh, uh, sentence people to death on the basis of race, which, but which nonetheless uh, had a disproportionate impact on black uh, criminal defendants. And in this memo, Justice Scalia said, look, everybody knows uh, that racism is pervasive and a systemic fact in our criminal justice system. It affects jury decisions. It affects prosecutorial decisions. Uh, Justice Scalia, in, in fact, went so far as to say that institutional racism in our criminal justice system was ineradicable. Critical race theory disagrees with that pessimistic view and holds that no, systemic racism is not ineradicable if we are willing uh, to reckon with it. Uh, it is not natural. Uh, racial exclusion is at odds with the deepest commitments of our constitutional democracy. Uh, and if we can muster uh, the will to take up the unfinished project of making America a more perfect union, uh, a union in which racial exclusion is not part of the bedrock of our Republican democracy, uh, then we can overcome uh, the kind of view which holds, as Justice Scalia did, that racism was somehow permanent and ineradicable. We're talking with Kendall Thomas, professor and co-founder and director of the Center for the Study of Law and Culture at Columbia Law School. We're also talking with Ian Haney Lopez, constitutional law scholar and law professor at UC Berkeley. We're talking about what critical race theory is and also examining the recent backlash against it. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are, the, what are your reactions to what you're hearing? What questions do you have about critical race theory? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Ian Haney Lopez, Kendall Thomas brought up Governor DeSantis, for example. Um, I, I want to talk about why people are talking about critical race theory now and why it is roiling people on the right and why it is spurring Republican lawmakers to, to propose uh, legislation or, or make other proposals around trying to eradicate critical race theory, say, from schools or universities. First, we know that there is actually a person, like a conservative activist named Christopher Rufo, who's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, who has openly admitted and takes pride in the fact that he drummed up the conflict over critical race theory because he saw it as a potent political weapon. Can you talk a little bit about that realization? But yet at the same time, it doesn't really seem to matter. Like it feels like it has caught fire in some way and really galvanized people, especially on the right. Yeah, I think pointing to Rufo is really important. So on the one, you know, in one way, we're talking about something that's happened just recently. And in another, we're talking about what's been happening politically for 60 years. So on the immediate front, um, you have somebody, Chris Rufo, recently hired at the Manhattan Institute, who recognized 
that there was a lot of anxiety among whites about diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, and who wanted a way to brand that anxiety. And diversity, equity, and inclusion, that language wasn't going to work because there's still a lot of positive connotations with that language. So he seized on critical race theory, which combines two elements that have been part of culture war politics for 50 years. One is a concerted effort to talk about racism, and the other is legal academics or academics in general, right? The, the, the elites as cultural elites supposedly looking down their, their noses at working class folks rather than the economic elites who actually pull the levers of power in our society. So critical race theory became a convenient uh, target. Rufo has been remarkably transparent, boastful even about the fact that he could care less the actual content of critical race theory, that his project was instead to strip it of all meaning and then to rebuild its meaning with, as he put it, everything toxic in America. So this is a concocted culture war. And it doesn't matter what critical race theory really is in this culture war. What matters instead is the way the term functions as dog whistle politics. And here I'm going to put the attacks on critical race theory in the context of attacks on, let's say, right now, um, uh, transgender people and supposedly putting children at risk in bathrooms or attacks on um, the integrity of the 2020 election and massive voting fraud. These are ways in which the right seeks to stir social conflict, social strife as a divide and distract tactic. And so if you think about the, the long history of dog whistle politics, it starts with uh, Barry Goldwater talking about states' rights, um, Richard Nixon and his so-called Southern strategy, states' rights, forced busing, Ronald Reagan gives us welfare queen, uh, illegal alien, gangbangers, the American heartland, hardworking, the taxpayers. A core part of cultural culture war politics is to stir racist fears and resentments, but to do so in coded terms that allow people to deny that that's what they're doing. That's precisely the dynamic surrounding critical race theory. And that's why it seems to have exploded on the right. There was already um, a sort of a vehicle, a, a commitment to this sort of demagogic politics and critical race theory emerged as another useful term in the way welfare queen was once a useful term. A way to say to whites, talk that all this talk about systemic racism or equity and inclusion or affirmative action, it is actually racism against whites. Dear white people, when people of color say things like Black Lives Matter, what they really mean is white people don't matter, right? That this is anti-racist. This is racist against whites. And well, so the well, myth then is... Yes, let, let me interrupt you there and say that we'll have more with you right after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence. 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about critical race theory and the recent backlash against critical race theory with Kendall Thomas, a professor and co-founder and director of the Center for the Study of Law and Culture at Columbia Law School, also the author of a book on foundational writings and also contributed to foundational writing on critical race theory. Ian Haney Lopez is constitutional law scholar and law professor at UC Berkeley, author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. And Ian Haney Lopez, this uh, listener sort of underscore something you were saying, Mike writes, I accept all of the premises of CRT as far as I understand them, because it is simply the honest empirical observation of historical events and economic facts as they have played out and become institutionalized. Unfortunately, we live in a time in which one side, the GOP, dishonestly and cynically uses CRT as a political tool to preserve the racist status quo. Racist status quo. I want to ask you, um, Dr. Kendall Thomas, for your reaction to what Ian Haney Lopez is saying and, and what you view as the emotional core that's animating the explosion and backlash, and if it does have something to do with it providing or being framed critical race theory as something that is, is really about being anti-white. Well, I, I think, in fact, that we need to step back as Professor Haney Lopez has invited us to do and look at what the politics of this thing are. And I always go back to the press conference that then candidate Donald Trump held after the Republican primary in Nevada, uh, in which he said to his assembled audience, I love the poorly educated. Uh, and I think the Republican Party loves the poorly educated. They love them so much that they want to keep them uneducated. And so what they've decided is that in the absence of uh, a principled and positive alternative to the emerging multicultural, multiracial, democratic future of America, that they're going to practice a kind of purge politics. These folks who are behind the attacks on CRT know they can't be anti-anti-racist, uh, so they're anti-CRT, three letters into which, as uh, Ian said, they have tried to pour everything that is bad in the world. But they could care less about CRT uh, because what they want to do is stoke racial fear and distrust in order to distract us from the failures of the radical right all over this country. Uh, I spoke a couple of weeks to an audience in Georgia on the same day that the Georgia State Board of Education issued a resolution condemning critical race theory around the beginning of a fiscal year, fiscal year 2021, in which public education in Georgia is going to be cut by almost $1 billion. So the Republican Party under Mr. Trump has presided over an upward redistribution of wealth and resources to political and economic elites. And uh, they know that by scapegoating CRT, they're going to um, demonize the diverse multicultural, multiracial, intergenerational movement 
of American citizens uh, that we will need in this country to address institutionalized economic injustice and social inequality. Uh, the social inequality that are devastating poor and working class communities of every race all over this country. So this purge politics is cynical uh, and it's driven by and motivated by uh, a desire to distract uh, people, to divide people, and to divert our attention from the deep failures of the attack really on democratic governance in which the people of the United States and not the not the, the, the wealthy folks who are donating uh, to the coffers of uh, these politicians get uh, to shape their lives. So we have been able to really talk about the motivations that are driving this. Um, but I, I do want to ask about the effect. I mean, at this point, this debate is playing out, as you allude to, Kendall Thomas, in schools and around public education. And um, I'm wondering, Ian Haney Lopez, if you can talk a little bit about the narrative around that. Before you do, though, I do want to read just a couple of comments related to this. Marina writes, for example, this needs to be removed from California's education. My son was exposed to this radicalized belief system, indoctrination, whatever you want to call it, at the beginning of the school year. He is now in counseling weekly. He is exposed. He was exposed to racism, suicide, and gender stereotypes. He was 10 years old in fifth grade at a school that he had been at since tra transitional kindergarten. His teacher was investigated by the California Teachers Credentialing Association. She was found to have done nothing wrong. We need help to remove this from our education system. It is a political agenda and it needs to be stopped. I mean, this is what Marina is saying here is what you're hearing from some parents. Um, and I'm just curious about what you see as the effect of all of this. I think that I think the place to start is to recognize what astroturf politics looks like. So astroturf politics is the Heritage Foundation. I'm on their website now. They've got a you know, Heritage Foundation, which is all about allowing corporations to write government regulation and tax cuts for corporations and the very wealthy, they're one of the leaders in the campaign against critical race theory. And their lead article, the opening paragraph says, how would you feel if your child came home from school and said her teacher had told her that everything that happens in the world is racist and that she's part of the problem because of the color of her skin? In other words, Heritage backed by dark money, is putting out exactly the sort of message to the conservative base that some in the conservative base then repeat back. And it would be an enormous mistake to respond to that by saying, oh my gosh, critical race theory really, really is in our school and really is assaulting children. Nonsense. That's rhetoric coming from dark money. And this to really, to really emphasize a point that Professor Thomas was saying, this is class war in the form of stoking racial conflict and race and racial fear. That's what's happening. And we, and we have to name that. Now, in terms of the form it takes, what better form in terms of scaring the heck out of people than to tell them their children are at risk? And so here the narrative coming from the right is 
the risk your children face is that they'll go to school with the with their little buddies in kindergarten or third grade and they'll be assaulted and they'll be racially targeted and they'll be you know um, uh, attacked for being evil alternately and again to pick something up earlier um, maybe the rhetoric from the right is um, your children are at risk because people with who don't identify with their at birth gender are going to use the same bathroom and all right the rhetoric of you must protect your children is a classic f- way of scaring people. That's what the right is doing. And that's the, that's the form it takes. What, what does this mean? Partly what this means is this is driving, that is, is intended to drive a tremendous amount of fear among people. The other part, though, is this is seeking to demonize elementary school teachers, Right. This is put, you know, some of these states are passing laws that say, well, if you if you teach these concepts, you as a teacher will be personally liable to a five thousand dollar fine. This is an effort to take people who should be respected and valued and frankly paid a whole lot more than they are right now. And instead to say elementary school teachers are part of the threat that our children face. Public education is part of the threat that our children face or to pick up on another point Professor Thomas made education in general, learning to think critically about the world around you is now somehow a a threat to society. So, Kendall Thomas, we are hearing from some teachers that they are feeling like they cannot hold discussions about racism or race in classrooms, Um, you know, with, with the passage with the making of Juneteenth as a national holiday, there were discussion about how they couldn't really talk to their kids about what Juneteenth was about if you applied some of these laws. So I'm curious what you think of that effect, but also what's the future of laws like this? I mean, do you think that they would hold up if challenged or when challenged? Well, let me start with the last question you asked. I think these laws pose enormous First Amendment problems. I won't get into the doctrinal uh, weeds in terms of Uh, the relevant constitutional decisions by the Supreme Court and other federal courts. Uh, But these laws are not imposing blanket prohibitions on talking about race. They are prescribing how race can be talked about. And uh, that ought to be deeply troubling to anyone uh, who is committed to a robust system of freedom of expression uh, in our public schools and who's opposed to the government dictating uh, how people can think uh, and what sorts of ideas can be presented in public education. I mentioned earlier Brown versus the Board of Education. There's a line in that opinion written by the great Chief Justice Earl Warren in which he said, Uh, that we've long realized the importance of education in a democratic society. In fact, uh, he said that public education is the very foundation of good citizenship because it teaches young children uh, in community, in learning communities with other young children, the kinds of skills that they will need to be effective citizens in our democratic republic. Uh, What these attacks on critical race theory sadly uh, show beyond a shadow of a doubt is that that democratic vision and thus democracy itself is at risk 
these attacks on democratic education are attacks on democracy itself. Uh, and the, the cynical effort to exploit and manipulate the racial illiteracy in the United States would not be possible if the radical right wing were not committed to a politics of general illiteracy. 50% of Americans cannot read above an eighth grade level. The Republican Party knows that. They know uh, then that they can invent uh, this monster that they call critical race theory, even though uh, many of uh, the ideas that they are uh, imputing to critical race theory are ideas that critical race theory was forged to dismantle, right? Uh, but this racial illiteracy, this civic illiteracy, this basic functional illiteracy uh, is enabling the Republican Party to, in effect, um, do a hit job on the ideals of democratic education. And I worry uh, about the future of a democracy in which the very foundations of democratic literacy, our public schools, are battlefields uh, for a, a politics that wants to purge the ability of people to engage in what the framers envisioned uh, in American society, a society in which citizens were able to debate, to discuss, deliberate, disagree, and dissent. Uh, that vision of the founders and the future of democracy in the United States is at risk because of these attacks. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Bill in San Jose. Hi, Bill. Join us. Hi, Bill. Are you there? Well, while we try to connect with Bill, let me go to Mariana in Berkeley. Hi, Mariana. Oh, hey there, Mina. I'm happy to be here on the program, and um, I would like to address the uh, use of the concept, plural, of race, and therefore racist, when we've known that there is only one human race. We're all 99% alike. So why is it that the news media, and why is it that we talk about different races? And I have taught at San Francisco State race and racism, cultural studies, and we deal with that because even in the 2020 census, we have add your race as if, you know, there's something as like a Filipino race or something like that when we know that there is only one race. So my question is, how does the scientific concept of race factor in critical race theory in the critical race theory debate? Since we know, like I said, there's only one race, the human race, and uh, so I'm wondering about how. Well, let me interrupt you, Ryan. We just don't have a lot of time. Let me just see if Ian Haney Lopez wants to quickly respond to what you're saying. I think it's a great question because what it reminds us is that if we're talking about biology, if we're talking about nature, if we're talking about fact, race is a complete lie. There is no biological disaggregation of human beings into discrete groups. It's a it's a complete lie. But don't stop there. Keep in mind that nevertheless, races are very, very real as social practices, as things that we as a society do. And here's where I want to bring back that original conversation about racism. 
racism as a word is saying to us, look at these practices, look at the things we do that make race real, that creates hierarchies of inferior and superior, that brutalizes some people, some groups. That is immoral, that is unjust, and a good society would repair those things, not just to help those who've been demonized, but in order to make the more perfect union that alone ensures that our democracy is functional for all of us. Professor Thomas, where do you hope this spotlight on critical race theory now goes? Even if we understand the motivations, even if we understand how it's operating, where do you hope it will well, go? Well, I see this as a teachable moment. I think, in fact, uh, that what we should have learned uh, from what has happened so far around critical race theory is that we don't know how to talk about race in this country without making everything personal, without making everything about individuals. Uh, but critical race theory and the insistence that racism is not just about conscious, intentional acts of discrimination, but about institutions and systemic uh, disadvantage, not about individual prejudice, but about institutional power, uh, seems to me to open up an opportunity for us to begin the work of developing a shared uh, literacy that will allow us to talk to one another about the continuing impact on our democratic present of our undemocratic racist past. So um, William Faulkner, the novelist, famously said, that uh, the past is not dead, it's not even uh, past. Uh, this gives us an opportunity, I think, to come up with another vision, another way of imagining our democratic republic in which we are not afraid of this history of racism, in which we recognize that that history, however much it hurts, if we're willing to face it head on, can be used to heal uh, the, uh, the wounds, the very real wounds uh, on our American body politic that the history of institutional racism has inflicted. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Kendall Thomas, professor, co-founder and director of the Center for the Study of Law and Culture at Columbia for joining us. Ian Haney, constitutional law scholar and law professor at UC Berkeley for joining us as well. I want to thank our listeners for their questions and thoughts. And also, I want to thank Blanca Torres and Caroline Smith for producing today's segments on Forum. Thank you for listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.